So I'm going to give you a sentence with a couple of blanks in the sentence, and I'd like you to try filling it in. So the sentence is this. If I believed dot, 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 then I would dot, dot, dot. If I believed, then I would. Okay. I'll give you some examples of what I mean. So, if I believed on the basis of good evidence that there was a hoard of gold Roman coins in my garden, then I would permit that garden, vicarage garden or not, to be completely turned over. Yeah? If I believed that, I would do that. If I believed, again, given good evidence, that my body contained life-threatening cancer cells then I would submit myself to all kinds of undignified and unpleasant treatments. If, then. If I believed on good evidence that the way to real life is not self-protection but self-sacrifice, then I would have a completely different attitude towards my possessions, my time, my energy, and I would live a life of giving these things away rather than conserving them. So in those three examples, I've moved from something possible, but pretty unlikely, the gold coins in the garden, to something that is actually much more likely to happen to any one of us, an unwelcome diagnosis, to what Jesus said in that passage we've just heard. Is the way to real life not self-protection, but self-sacrifice? There is a connection between what we believe and how we behave. And Jesus said, if you believe that I am who you just said I am, because Peter had just said, you are the Messiah, then you will give up your life if you want to save it. Jesus began his conversation that we heard in that passage with the, dis the question, so who do you say I am? And that's one of the five questions that I've given you on that sheet of paper. Who do you say that Jesus is? This is a pivotal question, and the answer's crucial. Because those disciples they're not going to have their lives turned upside down on the basis of a hunch. Jesus is calling them to follow him, and this is going to be very radical and life-changing. But that was all 2,000 years ago. Ooh, hang on. Here we are now. Jesus is calling us today, this morning, with the same calling to follow. And it is just as radical and life-changing. So everything hangs on who you think Jesus is. Does he have a right to ask you to change the way you live? Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah. And what he means by that is Jesus is king. Remember that at the time and in the place where Jesus said that, where Peter said that, Caesar was king, very, very powerfully king. So to say that Jesus was king was to invest a lot of authority in a wandering rabbi who had originally been a carpenter. 
But think what evidence Peter had seen. If you know your gospel stories, you'll know that Peter will have seen people who've met Jesus radically changed. He, he saw blind people who could see again. He saw deaf people who couldn't hear, who could hear again. He had watched people who were dead come back to life, and he had watched the criminally insane be calmed. And he had seen the storms stilled and crowds fed. These are the evidences that Peter had seen. If you believe, you would. Peter believed that Jesus was this king. I'm not sure that Peter really had all of his theology worked out. None of us ever do, let's face it. But he had grasped that Jesus was somehow God come down to live among us. And he had the authority to say, you follow me. When Jesus first said that to Peter standing on the beach, you know, I think it was maybe, well, it was the first step, but maybe it wasn't with a full understanding of everything he was signing up to. But Peter did drop everything and follow Jesus. But as we know, Peter would carry on following Jesus all the way through Jesus being rejected, Jesus being crucified, Jesus rising from the dead. Peter would keep on following this Jesus who then disappeared into heaven, who then wasn't the king that he thought he was. Through all of those confusing changes, none of which Peter could have anticipated, Peter kept following and eventually his following led him to his own death on a very different cross. So back to that sentence. If you believe that Jesus is God come down and lived among us, then what difference would that make to your ordinary life? Would you take up a life of faith that might not lead to worldly riches or earthly status, but Jesus promises that that will lead to something far more valuable than those two things? We're very, very familiar with the idea of that sentence that I gave you, the if, then. Is it almost every transaction or relationship in our lives works on this basis? You take out a mobile phone contract, and if you pay a certain amount, then you get a certain amount of data or minutes. You take out a guarantee for your central heating system, and if you pay for some standard, they come out in ever so many hours or not. You fulfill a job description, and you pay for a holiday, or you make marriage vows. We're very, very familiar with the if-then. There are always T's and C's. And this is what Jesus is talking about in this passage. What are the T's and C's? What are the expectations and commitments involved in following Jesus? And here's what he says, in case you missed it. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. Wow, that's a hard sell. That's a tough calling. 
Bonhoeffer was a um, famous Christian in the time of the Second World War in Germany. And he said that when Jesus calls us, he calls us to come and die. He later did die at the hands of the Nazis. A few decades later, a man called Jim Elliot would also follow the call of Jesus to go and take the love of God to a remote tribe in South America. That remote tribe would murder him, really pretty much without listening to his message. Yet Jim Elliot's wife, Elizabeth, followed the same call, and she would go back to that same tribe who then would listen to her and became followers of God. But before Jim Elliot died at the hands of that tribe, he said this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What is it that we cannot keep that we are rather precious about? We think we can keep our wealth, our status, even our health. But in fact, all of us are only ever a few steps away from losing those. And even if we do manage to go to our graves with wealth and status intact, but if we have used neither of these things to the benefit of others, who will remember us 50 years after our death? The essence of what Jesus says is that he calls us to a life of self-sacrifice, not self-protection. Jesus calls us to live for the well-being and benefit of others and not for our own benefit. And that's a fairly unnatural way to live. It doesn't come naturally to us, but Jesus modelled it for us. He lived a life of self-sacrifice and not self-protection. When he was accused, he didn't retaliate, he didn't self-justify, he didn't call out legions of angels or call down bolts of fire. He who had only loved went when he was rejected to the cross and allowed those who had rejected him and misunderstood him to nail him to that cross. The story that we will be recalling as we come to communion in a few moments but of course that wasn't the end Jesus didn't just self-sacrifice and that was the end and nor is it the end for us when we live self-sacrificially the promise of Jesus is that we will find real life a life that goes beyond death a life that is known and loved by God a life of significance A life that is far better, says Jesus, than even gaining the whole world. So have you heard this call from Jesus to follow you? The key question, I think, is number three on that set of five questions. What do you think about Jesus? Have you ever had a spiritual experience is the next question. And if you could, would you like to know God personally. If your answer to that question, if you could, might be yes, then please do hand me your questionnaire as you go out and I will hand you 
a book about Jesus, which I'd love you to read. Because I do think this morning that God still calls us to follow him. And it's really important that we don't give our answer glibly or lightly. It was about when I was nine when I first heard that passage. I remember it very clearly. I was at some sort of Christian convention camp thing with my parents. And I'd been taught a song based on that very passage. Um, I, I can even sort of the melodies going through my head, but I won't sing it to you. I remember the exact location of that prayer, where I was standing and what I could see in front of me. Will you follow? And I did, perhaps in my childish naivety, but I did say, I will follow. Oh my goodness, have I had to repeat that prayer over and over because it's never a one-off. In fact, it's almost an every day. Yes, I will follow. Yes, I will keep following this way of life. I will keep following you, Jesus, because this is not a philosophy. This is not a way of thinking. This is a person who calls me to follow him and live the way that he lived. I couldn't possibly have known as a child what I was signing up to. I'm still learning what it means to follow Jesus. But I do know that if I believe that Jesus is king, then I will live a life of self-sacrifice and not a life of self-protection. And that that is the route to real life. So what about you? What did it mean to you when you first heard God asking you to follow him? These are rhetorical questions. It's okay. I'm only asking you to answer in your head. What did it mean to you then? What does it mean to you today? What might it mean to you if that's a question that nobody's ever put to you? The idea that being a Christian is about following God and filling in that sentence, if Jesus is the Son of God, if God has come amongst us, then I can live a life of self-sacrifice just like Jesus showed me, and that is the way to real life. 